Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. For today's discussion, we will be speaking with Dr. Jerrica Kirkley, co-founder and CMO of Plume, a Denver-based direct-to-consumer telehealth company that provides medical consultation and gender-affirming hormone therapy for transgender patients. As a trans woman, family practice physician, and educator, Dr. Kirkley and her co-founder, Dr. Matthew Wetzler, started Plume in 2019 to radically increase access to gender-affirming services. For a monthly fee of $99, Plume clinicians will create a customized treatment plan for patients, which can include prescriptions of testosterone, estrogen, and testosterone blockers to help individuals align their physical body with their identified gender. Nearly 80% of Plume's clinical team identifies as trans, and more than half of the company's business side is comprised of transgender individuals. In February of 2021, the company successfully raised a $14 million Series A round from Kraft Ventures, General Catalyst, Slow Ventures, and Town Hall Ventures. Bloom is currently operating in 33 states and has been regarded as one of the fastest growing trans tech companies in the nation. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Kirkley. Could you first share with us your inspiration for Plume? Yeah, thanks so much for having me here. I'm really excited uh, to be on the podcast. When I was thinking about going to medical school, my primary focus was trying to find ways to provide high-quality healthcare to marginalized communities. When I got into residency was really where I first got into gender-affirming care clinically. And um, I was in residency that um, I worked with a mentor to create an LGBTQ plus curriculum um, for residents and the faculty and the residency program. Um, But a big part of that curriculum was focused on gender affirming care, uh, which really, you know, looks at hormone therapy for trans folks, but also just how to provide holistic primary care services that are centered around the trans experience. And so from there started to see, you know, a lot of patients who are trans and provide gender affirming care and continue to do that in uh, my primary care practice after that, working in a community health center for the last five years before starting Plume. And uh, the other piece of this is my own journey, my own gender journey. And, you know, uh, in the past little over a year ago, coming out myself as a, a trans woman, you know, receiving medical services, seeking other support services, things like changing name, changing gender markers. And going through that whole process and realizing that there just really isn't a lot of support depending on where you are in the country and the world. And uh, so as somebody who's provided gender affirming care, who's received it myself, recognizing those pain points um, and and really seeing the edges of the medical system as we know it um, and wanting to create something that could provide, of course, high quality care, very affirming care, but do it in a way that's accessible and breaking down a lot of the barriers that existed as a medical provider, as a patient, and wanting to, wanting to build something, you know, by and for trans people that really reflected our experience. Very inspiring to hear having this perspective as both a patient and a medical provider. Could you share with us the current state of, you know, broadly gender-affirming care? For sure. I think, you know, maybe one thing to do up front is just to define the best we can what is gender-affirming care. 
And you know, gender affirming care, we largely think of in a healthcare context, and that's pretty much where it's isolated right now. Um, within that, that can be a pretty broad definition. Um, getting back to what I mentioned about my work in the residency, I went to, you know, just providing any kind of medical care in an affirming way that takes the trans experience into context um, and respects individuals. And so whether that's, um, you know, just doing an annual physical, treating high blood pressure, diabetes, or providing hormone therapy uh, for gender affirmation or surgical services or whatever it might be, doing that in a way that's affirming and empowering. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a lot of things within that that are a little bit more focused and specific to the trans experience. So gender affirming hormone therapy being one that, um, of course, not all folks desire to be on hormones who are trans, but many do. Um, you know, upwards of 80% of trans folks based on studies and surveys identify that as being a desire and an important need. And then there's uh, you know, surgical services, as I mentioned as well, which are, can be specific to, to gender affirmation. Now, there's a lot of things that go on that I alluded to previously in terms of legal context, uh, social support services, community connection, which are not oftentimes addressed by the medical community just because that's not where the expertise lies and nor do most clinical entities have the bandwidth to address those things. You know, so what does gender affirming care in the healthcare landscape look like today? Um, you know, I really see it as being provided in a few different contexts. And um, in a lot of cases, the most ideal context is what we call sort of an LGBTQ plus clinic or health center. And that's where a lot of the care started. Um, so, you know, that's where we have we have a lot to owe to the leaders in the field that have come from places like Fenway Community Health, you know, going on to form the Fenway Institute, uh, Howard Brown. Uh, community Health Center in Chicago, UCSF, uh, you know, the list goes on. There's definitely a, a list of probably five to 10, you know, clinics who were seeing trans patients in the early days where nobody else was seeing trans people. And that's where we've kind of gotten a lot of the population-based research that we do have today was out of those efforts. But given those centers, as good as they can be, are isolated, obviously, to geographic regions, not everybody can reach those places. So for even if we talk about 10 to 15 in the population of you know, upwards of you know, most estimates, you know, we're looking at around 2 million plus trans people in the country, but probably a lot more given a lot of those are underestimates. Yeah, it becomes a, a largely underserved population, given those are kind of like the, the best case care scenario. So where do most people go? Um, the primary care sector. And so that's your general clinic that's in your local community. There's, there's some amazing primary care providers, um, you know, that's what I was doing myself before I started Plume, um, who are doing awesome gender affirming care and providing just comprehensive, you know, beautiful affirming services to everybody. But unfortunately, that can be few and far between, especially when you get into certain parts of the country that get outside of the urban centers, which tend to attract, you know, a lot of those folks interested in doing that work and who have that training experience. And also recognizing, um, I know we'll talk a little bit more about education later on, but that it's not a standard part of medical curricula, uh, whether in medical schools, nurse practitioner schools, or PA schools. So you don't just have a provider base who's who's ready and, you know, willing to see patients. And um, and equipped with the clinical skills, much less the, the, the kind of cultural empathy and understanding. So, uh, you know, when folks are coming into these clinics, it can oftentimes be a pretty bad experience. Um, best case, it's 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 not affirming. Uh, worst case, there's active discrimination. You know, even violence and danger. Um, upwards a third, upwards of a third of trans people are actively discriminated in healthcare facilities in this country. So, um, so that's what it looks like for a lot of people. And I think the thing to think about is like the care process doesn't start when you walk into the clinical door, you know, it starts when you leave your own door. Um, I think as any 
person in a marginalized community, but especially in the trans community, it's, there's a lot of intimidation and fear of just going from your door to your transportation, your transportation to the parking lot, the parking lot to the actual clinical front door. Um, opportunities where you can be, you know, of course, discriminated against, uh, dead named, having that wrong name used, uh, misgendered. And then all that can happen again as you go through the multiple levels in the clinical facility. So your greeter, your front desk, your medical assistant, your nurse, your medical provider, uh, maybe a you know case manager, social worker, and then you do the whole thing again as you leave. And the other place where people are getting care is off the black market, off the street, in most cases unregulated online quote unquote pharmacies who are distributing medications but without any kind of medical evaluation or certification. And so uh, unsupervised medical care obviously can, can be risky for a lot of reasons. Um, but yeah, that's, that's another place where a lot of people are, are getting gender affirming hormone therapy from because of the, the, the lack of access. released uh, from the New England Journal of Medicine, I'm sure you're familiar, in July that sort of summarized um, recent Supreme Court-related decisions with uh, relation to healthcare as well as the workplace for transgender individuals and summing up how COVID was exacerbating um, disparities for transgender folks. What did you sort of glean from, you know, COVID and, and how Plume sort of fits in with ensuring access to care? Starting Plume, which the very first uh, you know thought process was about February of last year, 2019. So well before obviously anybody could be thinking about COVID, and so we knew that the I mean the future of healthcare really I mean in in many ways is virtual, right? And and I think in a, maybe a better way to put it is just like doing a better job of meeting patients where they are. I think whether that's having a, a better community orientation of the care we're providing. Um, you know, we talk a lot about identity resonant care, um, but also just logistically and, and with technology, meeting people where they are um, and reaching folks that, that can't get into the physical clinics. And we know that it's very useful, effective, high quality um, for a lot of clinical conditions. The physical space is always going to hold its place in the medical community. Um, but we knew that was a way forward. Um, but yeah, of course, when COVID hit, I mean, it highlighted that to the nth degree, right? I mean, you had clinics shutting down that weren't able to adapt um, that had been probably, you know, I mean, we, we've all been, this technology is not new, right. you know, uh, virtual medical care. We, we could have been doing this on a regular basis for 10, 15 plus years, but there's been a lot of resistance because of stakeholders like insurance companies, obviously patients, and, and unfortunately felt the brunt of that who couldn't go to their clinic that they were going to on a regular basis, you know, who then tried to get into other clinics who were swamped because they were having lots of people rush them because they were couldn't get into their clinics. Um, you know, again, folks who Clinic systems have done varying jobs of, of leveling up on the technology side of things, you know, and unfortunately, some have had to close down because they couldn't um, and didn't have the resources needed. So it has impacted a lot of people, but it's also opened up stakeholders' eyes, you know, and I think obviously insurance companies are seeing the value of it. You know, large hospital systems are seeing the value of it and, uh, and investors also, uh, you know, which is kind of the space that we're in. I think one of the key issues is that medical necessity needs to be communicated, I guess, more strongly because, you know, uh, at least from my research and my understanding, um, any interventions for uh, transgender and non-binary individuals is um, often, you know, 
warranted given this diagnosis of gender dysphoria, and it'd be great to sort of discuss this concept. But I think um, with COVID, there's been a prioritization of medically necessary procedures. And I think this is still evolving within gender affirming surgery, um, given, you know, the aesthetic principles, at least with surgery. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a great uh, a theme that is so important. Um, obviously extends beyond COVID and, um, and access, but just the, 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 I mean, the the point you brought up that gender affirming surgeries are medically necessary, you know, period. And, and that's something that fortunately more surgeons and insurance companies are, um, waking up to and acknowledging. Um, but then right when you do overlay something like COVID and you have this triaging of quote unquote medical necessity, um, you know, that can sometimes go by the wayside, but it's super, super important that it, that it doesn't. And, and I think like there's, you know, there's always going to be triaging a medical need in any kind of like medical emergency or disaster environment. Um, but, it, but it is true that those are truly medically necessary, uh, necessary procedures, just as gender affirming hormone therapy is a medically necessary service for a lot of trans people and having access to that is, is important. And so access in many ways, right. That could look like insurance coverage, but also, just having medical providers who can provide that. And, and, and as far as gender dysphoria goes, you know, what we're talking about really, I think at this kind of most basic level, is just any kind of distress, impairment, negative feeling that's associated with a incongru- an incongruence between your known or felt gender and what somebody was assigned at birth. And, you know, and that's kind of, I think, the simplest way to look at it. And when that distress or impairment really starts to affect function, you know, it impacts mental health, uh, we know that there's higher rates of depression, anxiety, suicidality among the trans community. It, then it even further, I think, necessitates those procedures and and um, and hormone therapy because we know that they that they're helpful for those things and that they can drastically improve quality of life and and improve mental health outcomes. a good time to sort of dive into plume and we'd love to hear about how the platform works and sort of taking us through what services are currently offered yeah for sure so we operate on a subscription model uh with a monthly fee you have access to an initial consult and then all your follow-up care after that including lab monitoring and, and management of your prescriptions and refills um and so we're providing care specifically for gender affirming hormone therapy right now Um, With that, we also provide things like letters of support for surgery, letters of support for gender marker change and legal name change, which often have to be sought from medical professionals. Um, And but looking to build out, I think, you know, really a a comprehensive set of services which are focused on gender affirmation. And we see that as, you know, clinical services and and also non-clinical services, as I kind of mentioned before. Um, but but I think our next big step is looking into um, how do we provide emotional support services and what does that look like? Our, our setup, as I mentioned, you know, you can go to our website, you download our app, you start the onboard process, and within 20, 30 minutes, you can schedule your visit. You're seen within a few days with a video visit to start your care, and then you just text us whenever questions come up. And so you don't have to schedule follow-up visits. Um, you know, we, that's why we use that subscription model to make it really as easy and convenient as possible. And we have clinicians, um, so physicians, nurse practitioners, um, and some PAs working for us to provide that clinical care, um, a full team of care coordinators who are kind of the front lines folks who address the needs as they come in and questions 
um, nurses and um, and clinical managers. And so, you know, and, and upwards of 80% of our care team is trans, our clinical care team, um, you know, over 50% of the organization is trans. And so, um, you know, we really take that to heart and uh, focused on building a company that's by trans people for trans people. Any primary care, as you know, is prized upon this idea of continuity and relationship building. Is there a way to have the same mental health provider or endocrinologist or uh, primary care physician for a long period of time and have that team sort of work together? Yeah, for sure. And so the way we provide care is through an empanelment system, meaning that like all of our providers, our medical providers and clinicians, uh, when they see a patient for that consult visit, then they take care of that patient ongoing. And so, you know, every, every provider is building up a panel of patients and we use a team-based approach. And so, you know, we have a group of care coordinators who are addressing all concerns that, that come in. Um, and then, you know, emotional support services, again, like could look a lot of different ways. Um, but there's always, I'd say cooperation and, and collaboration between the team members, but the clinician kind of being certainly the point person, right? Because, It'd be really hard to scale like one-on-one relationships with hundreds of thousands of people, you know, because then you have to hire hundreds of thousands of people, which is challenging. Um, but you know, if you if you can find ways to do it creatively, that's meaningful, impactful, um, and actually scalable, I think that's you know, and that's really the the gap we've been trying to bridge with Plume. Well, you know, so I mentioned this a subscription-based model, and we're cash only right now, um, and and that was really intentional because of the insurance landscape in this country, right? There's a few variables there. One is um, uh, there's, there's certainly a lot of insurers who don't cover or cover well gender-affirming services, right? So the cost of medications, um, even getting that service provided any clinic. But then on top of that, you know, insurance is not great, even if maybe coverage is included. You're paying high premiums, there's high deductibles, and it can be pretty expensive. Even with insurance, it can cost far more than what somebody would pay with us in a year of, of getting their gender affirming hormone therapy. But if you take the best case scenario with insurance, it's, it's an amazing plan, you know, and, and you can, it's every covers everything. Uh, then you have to find somebody to provide that care, you know? So, um, and oftentimes these insurers, these insurances are linked to employers. So if you lose your job, you got to start from scratch and starting from scratch in the gender affirming care world is, is pretty daunting, right? Um, it's one thing if you just like move to another state, change jobs and you're like, oh, I'll just go to whatever, you know, primary care clinic to make sure I get my blood pressure checked. Um, but, you know, doing that for gender affirming care is, is very different. And um, so, yeah, so employers linked to insurers, which don't equal access to care, um, you know, you can see that like even having insurance isn't necessarily, or it's definitely not a guarantee. You've built a tremendous workforce of providers, uh, NPs, PAs, and um, physicians who are well-equipped to, to serve these patients. But how can, number one, the first question is, how do you source these providers and, and find them? And is there a way to leverage their employment or affiliation uh, to, to build a, a wider community? So, you know, to the, to the second point, um, you know, leveraging providers' affiliation to build a wider community. Um, that is one of the magical things about what we're doing. You know, again, like even if you take a um, LGBTQ plus community health center who's been doing the work for for years, 
there's always that geographic barrier which limits who you can hire, right? Because, I mean, you can't, if you operate in a brick and mortar facility, you can't hire somebody who lives in California and have them work in your brick and mortar facility in Boston. Um, just not going to work. Um, that would be a lot of flying each day. Um, but, you know, but what, since we're operating on a distributed remote environment, we can hire clinicians from literally all over the country to serve any patient anywhere in the country. And uh, so with that, as, as, as we bring on providers, the word spreads, um, we certainly try to tap into their local networks and as far as, you know, letting people know about Plume um, and getting the word out. Um, but yeah, but then really you have this just organic network of providers who are looking to do this work. I wanted to zoom out a little and, and ask at a high level, what do you envision to be the, the goal of, of Plume in, say, five to 10 years? Where do you see the company in an ideal situation? Five to 10 years, you know, I, I kind of look at Plume being you know, synonymous with gender affirmation. As I mentioned, we're starting with gender affirming hormone therapy, but gender affirmation happens in a lot of ways. And I think there's just so many um, opportunities and, and spaces to, to move into and, and, and provide affirming experiences in industries where it just hasn't happened. Um, and so, yeah, I guess in the broadest sense, that's kind of what I, what I see Plume as. Um, you know, I, certainly in five to 10 years, being present in all 50 states and you know, having a, a very vast provider network, looking at both clinical and non-clinical services, and, uh, you know, I think not unreasonable to think about a global presence at that point, because um, we know that gender affirming care needs are high everywhere, right? Not just in the U.S. and, and in some, some places, um, obviously a lot of places that are even more underserved than the U.S. are. So, Another question that I had was, uh, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur who is interested in, in building a healthcare company in LGBTQ? Uh, space, not only gender affirming surgery, but sort of broadening it to our potential listeners. What are the key, you know, takeaways and lessons and considerations from your experience? I think for one thing, like it really needs to come from the heart, right? Like it, there just has to be a, a passion behind it. Um, working, you know, in a company uh, that's venture backed and being in the space of a lot of other companies who are venture backed and kind of hearing the stories um, you know, I think the ones that thrive, it's, 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 you know, a passion, it's recognizing a need and just being dead set on, on meeting that need. Um, so it definitely has to come from that, from a, um, a heart forward place. Um, and, you know, I think especially when we're working with communities who are vulnerable and have, you know, experienced health disparities and, and have unique needs, but, uh, you know, on top of that, yeah, like be willing to be creative, like think outside the box, you know, look at what the landscape is in whatever area you're in, um, look at the structures, look at the stakeholders and just, you know, gut check and ask yourselves, like, is this the best way to go about solving this issue? And if it is, then great, give it a go. If it's not like figure out what you need to do to change that. Um, and, and yeah, just being willing to learn because it's, uh, in a startup environment, especially it's fast moving, you know, there's a lot of lot of demands on everybody's time and it's always a desire to do more than than what you have available you know to work with um so it's uh it's always a balancing act of keeping um you know keeping your if you're working with patients keeping your members your patients needs at the center of everything that you're doing um but also you know growing expanding and and increasing that access to folks 
it would be helpful to hear about your experience in medical school and residency, um, given you know the current state of uh, gender affirming related education for medical students. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, there's there's not a standardized curriculum by any means when it comes to gender affirming care uh, or understanding the trans experience. There are probably schools which do it better than others. You know, a study that was done a few years ago, I believe this was back in 2011, looked at just what is the mean time of, of what we'll call comprehensive or broadly speaking LGBTQ plus education in a medical school curriculum and it was about five hours, you know, and the percentage of that which was trans related was highly variable, in many cases, zero hours. So so we know that our baseline is not very healthy. And then that's just medical school. That doesn't account for medical residencies, which again are very disparate. You're going into many different fields, many different departments. Um, and then also nurse practitioner schools and PA schools. And what is the ideal? I think from a medical school perspective specifically, it's certainly some focused content, uh, right? Like there's just some things that are very specific, like gender affirming hormone therapy. What does that look like? How do you do it? Um, like what medications do you use? What, you know, what labs do you check? There's that kind of like nuts and bolts stuff that you, you know, a lot of people learn in the second and third year of medical school. But I do see it as being longitudinal and being weaved in, right? And so if you're having, if you're organizing your curriculum by blocks, like having that trans experience present throughout. And so whether that's learning, if it is something that's more endocrinology focused or if it's um, uh, along the lines of, of mental health and, um, you know, what does it look like for trans people if it's a, uh, a block looking at substance use and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think at least from my perspective at my medical school, we had uh, a few panels only, which I mean, were very insightful and helpful, um, but I wish we could have had more of the nuts and bolts actually. And I think majority of my education on this subject has come through research opportunities. So I think mm -hmm. that's another way that uh, a lot of medical students can learn about various nuances in addition to the, the nuts and bolts of gender affirming care. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think another way is like, you know, of course, nothing replaces clinical experience and just and also right. just like knowing trans people, right? That can happen in a variety of ways. But on the clinical environment, of course, can be challenging if you're at a medical school or training program where there maybe just aren't a lot of providers doing gender affirming care, you know, it gets back to the virtual access piece, right? I mean, doing care virtual is great for patients because it meets people where they are, but you could, I could also foresee this whole world of, you know, virtual medical education and where, you know, medical students or NP uh, trainees or PAs can, and even providers who have already trained, right? Continuing medical education can tap into a training environment, which is virtually accessible you know, um, and be able to shadow and or, you know, see patients under the supervision of a provider. So I think there's, yeah, all kinds of amazingly exciting and, and creative ways that we can expand medical education to, you know, to really meet the needs of, uh, of many communities which are underserved, including the trans community. What would you advise uh, physicians and, and surgeons how can they best advocate for, for patients on more community or uh, national levels? Really, it does start at the individual level. And just like, how are we engaging with the trans community and talking about the trans community on a day-to-day -day basis? There, there's certainly local policy initiatives you can get involved with. For example, um, there's very unfortunately, especially in this climate in, in the past year, 
um, a lot of attempts to push through legislation at a local level that um, are very and very discriminatory against the, the broader LGBTQ plus community, but especially the trans community. Um, you know, the, in a lot of states, there, um, this legislation or attempt of legislation popped up to actually criminalize healthcare providers, specifically doctors, for providing gender affirming care services to youth. Um, you know, including like massive uh, financial fees and even imprisonment is ludicrous um you know and so testify against that you know like show up at your local legislature your your state capital and um you know tell the legal bodies that this is inappropriate and why and based on your experience and um you know that's really powerful i've done that uh multiple times um you know it can look like um yeah there's lots of advocacy effort efforts which occur locally of course whether that's um just community organization, marches, um, actual policy work could be contributing to your local trans or LGBTQ plus policy organization, you know, even if that's a a financial contribution, which of course can go a long way. Um, But also there's always a lot of volunteer needs. Um, So maybe like working, um, you know, call centers and things like that that are related to advocacy efforts that these organizations are doing. I think Plume is, has really established itself as a pioneer in gender-affirming care. Um, it would be helpful to hear more about other companies that have sort of sparked within this space. And um, what are the key unmet needs you, you still see in gender-affirming care to sort of inspire our listeners uh, to address through innovation and entrepreneurship? You know, I think there's a there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of the things that we're trying to chip away at. But if you wanted to kind of isolate and pick them out, there there's the payment space, of course, right? Like we need a lot of change there and reform, whether that is insurance or not, you know, subscription, cash or not. How does it all interplay? Um, there there's definitely room for innovation and policy, but also just technology and how we're facilitating that. Um, you know, I mentioned electronic medical records, right? I mean, we're building our own literally because nothing exists to do that what we wanted to do. Um, so, but there's a lot of big medical record systems that are out there, uh, you know, that are the backbone of many healthcare institutions and facilities. And so, I think there's a lot of room within those companies to innovate and uh, make systems which are more affirming, you know, for uh, for especially trans folks and and broader LGBTQ folks when it comes to how we're identifying people in the EMR, how are records you know, being sent to patients and what do they look like when they get there. Uh, within the care space, I mean, of course, like uh, would love to see just more broader access um, and uh, you know, leveraging virtual technology. Um, there's, again, like so much that we can do with that and we're just kind of um, hitting the tip of the iceberg. And then uh, education reform. So medical education reform, like a lot of room there um, for, again, some of the more kind of like you could call it policy or curricular changes, but then being innovative in how we deliver that to to learners. Um, Yeah, and I think the list goes on, but I guess those are a lot of things that stay at top of mind with the the work that we do on a day-to-day basis. Oh, I guess one other thing I'll say is uh, clinical trials, right? So research and clinical trials you know, where there's always a struggle, I think, especially when we're working with vulnerable communities to find high enough numbers of folks to have impactful data um, just based on recruitment restrictions, you know. And so um, if we can open that up to also virtual networks and, um, you know, virtual facilitation of, of, of trials like that, that, that could be a real game changer. Dr. Kirk, what do you think? 
quickly, we wanted to thank you again for spending the time with us today and really discussing this you know, key issue in our health system and, and sharing how you've been able to innovate as, as a physician and co-founder of Plume. And we're just so excited and uh, grateful for your time. Uh, we have one last question. What is one key piece of advice um, just from your experiences uh, thus far with Plume for those who are aspiring entrepreneurs, uh, very broadly speaking? Uh, you know, I think it would be identify your most important stakeholders and listen to them. You know, if I had to say one thing, um, which can be a loaded statement because there's a lot of uh, folks out there who who might tell you they're your most important stakeholder, but probably not. And so I think really honing on who that is, you know, and for me, um, that's our patients first and foremost, and then our, our medical providers who take care of them. And then it all builds around that. Um, you know, also just the last thing I'll say is that um, while we're doing everything we can again to radically change the care process, you know, we, we couldn't be doing any of it without all the amazing work that's been done before within the gender affirming care space, within the healthcare field as a whole, and a lot of the innovation that's that's come through, you know, over the last century. So, um, yeah, we, we definitely want to recognize and honor that work that's been done and just build on it as much as we can. Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.